Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, today's Monday, and turns out this week, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but it turns out this week is um, the yard set of my Rosh Hashiva and Henry Rosenberg, who uh, lived with him, with Mishamashim, it uh, set aside that we want to do uh sponsor one uh, this week in honor and memory of uh, Rabbi Ruderman. But on the other hand, I don't want to do a whole bio or anything like that. First of all, I, I wrote a 75-page business you know, about years ago, back in the Yishon. You can look at yourself. And uh, my nephew told me that the Hamodia excerpted part of it whenever this week. <clears throat> There's already all these PR campaigns. But you know, if you want all the biographical details, at least the ones we chose to share with you, the others are none of your business, um, then you read that. It's in the Yishon. I'm sure it's online somewhere. It must be in Hebrew books. Uh, instead, um... I want to talk about one aspect of Rabbi Ruderman, uh, and it's a, I guess you call it a Baltimore aspect, or perhaps it's a sociological one. And I was thinking about it for the last uh, two hours or so, and I'll share you my thoughts, um, especially I have in front of me uh, one of the old Yiddish biographies of Yisrael Salantar. The uh, Rabbi Ruderman started the Shiva near Yisrael, in 33, in Baltimore, near Yisrael is named after Yisrael Salanter, the light of Israel, right? Yisrael Salanter. Now, Yisrael Salanter, Yisrael Salanter was a very unusual person, um, which you definitely won't get from the regular biographies and stuff. <clears throat> and I'm referring to the fact that he thought out of the box, okay? Some of the things like uh, shocking, you may say. I mentioned from time to time, when he came to Germany, he saw a situation over there. He advocated publishing the Steinsalz. Then he even advocated publishing what we would call a Sansino translation of the Babylonian Talmud. Not in Hart's Scroll, but a Sansino translation of Babylonian Talmud. Then he thought maybe it's a good idea to teach, give Gemara classes in college and university for Gaim too. I, I'm telling you, he's out of the box in the hope that this would make Gemara fashionable. And then the Jewish students who are abandoning any study of Talmud would say, if the guy like it, then we want to do it too. You know, that kind of thing. And many other projects he had. They didn't happen, but these are the ways he thought out of the box. And even though, believe it or not, Bishol Santa in his day was criticized for these projects, although nobody in the world thought of questioning his L'Shem Shamayim, that goes without saying. But they didn't like these ideas, and they didn't get off the ground. But I'm thinking one very specific thing in the context of what I want to talk about today. There's a famous story. You never know what's true, what's not true. But they say it, and I. it sounds to me true, that when Israel Salanter came to Germany, I think you know he was originally started in Lithuania, then he spent many years, 20 years in Germany. Mostly in Memel at the far end, but nevertheless he was in Germany. They traveled around there a little bit. So, that time was Reform Judaism. That's when it was really taken off. 
And as you know, they developed a counter-reform movement called Orthodox Judaism. That's what the original meaning of Orthodox Judaism, especially when they used the word neo-Orthodoxy. They mean Sam Hildesheimer and so forth, that they were moms fighting it. You understand? Opposing it. Critiquing it. Criticizing it. And things like that. Okay? Now, here's the thing. What good did this do? Well, I mean, it's debatable. You know, in other words, did they persuade anybody? Kenzine, I'll tell you one thing. Where Again, I say for 10 millionth time, I'm only telling you the way I understand it. No, this is my best take on the history. I don't think that many, I, don't, I doubt if any Reformed Jews were persuaded by reading anything of Sanstrave of Hirsch to the degree that they did read it. What Hirsch was into, and of Hildesheimer in his way, and the Würzburger of in his way, and so forth, was trying to hold on to the faithful that shouldn't hemorrhage more. You get it? The whole idea of writing 19 letters of Benazil and all that business is the Mechazic, the ones who haven't gone over yet. The ones who haven't ever yet, like, forget about it, like they say in Brooklyn. You know, it's, it's sad. It's gone. But we don't want to lose more. And the whole, therefore, of two of that sort of thing, plus to hold on to the 10 15%, that's what remains orthodox in Germany. I'm using the term orthodox very widely. But if you talk about people in Germany in the second half of the 1800s, first part of the 1900s, who identified as Orthodox Jews, they usually say about 15%, a little less. Which is very impressive, because you never had anything like that in America. Now, Israel Salanter came during the middle of all this. He came to 1859-1860. There was much the peak years of the battles. And he's supposed to have said, that he said, it was up to me, I want to engage in all this business, you know, Hersheyan style, even though he met Sam Bush once. He liked him, he admired him, but that's not my policy. What would you do? So they said, what I would do is I would have, this I heard the story, I would have 10 from Jews join every reformed temple, not make any waves, not cause any trouble, be friendly to everybody, you know, obviously dive at home, but, you know, attend the services and all that junk, even if they leave out this and change the feelings and all the rest of it. Just sit there afterwards and learn. You know, like they used to do in Orthodox shows. You know, sit there and learn. Okay? Again, don't criticize anybody. Don't make any trouble. Just learn there. And over the course of time, he thought, this is Charles Hunter I'm talking about, he thought that this will actually eventually cause a change by the reform they'll move back to being from. Again, this is way out of the box especially in the 1860s and 70s. That was his notion. You understand? So you could say it's a mystical, Hamarsha Bator Machzir Lemotov, you can go like that. We can say that was the insight he had into sociology. It's, it's true even today, less today than before, that many of the Jews who are former conservatives just belong to those shuls. It's not like they have a big beshita or something like that. You understand? They belong to it. So if they see the Torah side, without any being a criticism or anything like that, it'll, you know, sooner or later affect them and it'll move things in the right direction. This is a famous thing he said. Now, why am I saying this today? The Rabbi Rudiman's uh, yard site is coming up, I guess, on Wednesday. So, I'm bringing this up. I've lived in Baltimore all my life. I'm not a young man. 
so I have the perspective over here. <clears throat> when the yeshiva first started, about 90 years ago, 1933, so Baltimore, which was one of the larger cities in America, I would say at that time had 60,000 Jews. Which is large. It's not like New York. It's not like Philly, but you know, pretty big. And uh, was a big center, so I would say, of um, Jewish culture in the conservative, somewhat reformed type. Uh, you had a lot of that over here. That had started already in the 1800s. The reform took over in the 1800s, and the conservative was on the move in the early 1900s. It didn't crystallize until the 1940s, interestingly. Okay? But you already had a lot of people, even if the shows they attended was officially Orthodox, like the Chizagamun and so forth. But really, 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 if you ask them who they agree with, uh, you know, they agree with Rabbi Lazar Silver, or they agree with, uh, you know, Solomon Schechter. I mean, they agree with Solomon Schechter, get it? And that's really what happened. So you had what I would call the age of anemic orthodoxy. This is true around the country, but again, I'm speaking more at home because I've sort of lived through this, so I'm not that old, but, you know, I have a sense of perspective, or at least I think I do. That's why I'm sharing this with you. Now, at that time... Um, Baltimore was a different place. You still had a lot of Orthodox synagogues, but it was hemorrhaging. When he came here in the 1930s, it was hemorrhaging. Uh, little by little, this family and that family, each one in a different year, kids started leaving. And that was the reality. Of course there is exceptions, but you know that's generally the way it was. <clears throat> it was like that around the country, but definitely in Baltimore. <laughs> Nothing dynamic here. Okay? Now, um... When the yeshiva started, and afterwards, it was very interesting, and I wrote about this, that Rabbi had made it his business not to get into fights or criticize anybody. Matter of fact, if you know the inside baseball, they even got some reformed rabbis to help him out in the beginning. There's Rabbi Rosenau and others. It's a bunch of stories. Okay? And the idea was like this. You, and again, I'm just sharing my perspective. You gain nothing from the criticism. The only thing that works is what works. The go and attack doesn't really help, and it doesn't make more people from, and it certainly doesn't convert the ones who are not from to being from. Okay? You can agree with that, you can disagree with it, but I'm telling you, that's Mahal. That's a Mahal. And instead, what he did was to um, concentrate just on building yeshiva, starting with a few boys, and getting more and getting more and more. It was a long process. Yeshivas in general were very much on the out. That was the era in the 20s and 30s in which the seminary type was seen as the only legitimate form of higher Jewish education. Even while you had the calls of Isaac Elkhanan Reitz Theological Seminary. Right? Isaac Elkhanan Theological Seminary. It's a Jewish Theological Seminary, Isaac Elkhanan Theological Seminary. And of course the Hebrew Union College with form. The idea over there was that you train people to become clergymen, rabbis of synagogues. America needs American-trained rabbis of synagogues. They need a few more people beyond that, maybe to teach in higher courses somewhere, maybe a high school level, maybe college level here and there and the other, although there were no college courses at that time, or hardly any. There were like two in the whole America. And, you know, let's say to in, in an ideal form, to create a tiny um, intellectual elite, they'll be Judaically 
cultural and interested, and they'll consume the books that are published by the Jewish Publication Society, and they'll know a little bit of Ivrit, and obviously they'll be culturally Zionist, I repeat, culturally Zionist, things like that. This was a general trend. And that's where the money went. So people who are philanthropists and things like that, that's what they thought was the way to go. To have a yeshiva, forget about the fact that it's in Yiddish, that's already a demerit. But to have a yeshiva, all you do is study Gemara. And it's not even for the purpose of graduating clergymen, although they certainly did that. Mary has always done that. So all the yeshivas. But the idea of what you would say today, the, the Balabas, who's a uh, learner, that was extremely strange. Okay? See, so the yeshiva had a hard time uh, gaining, uh, what's the right word, acceptance, legitimacy, even in the Orthodox Jewish community. There were pockets from the very beginning that supported yeshiva, there were. Like I say, I'm not getting an insider baseball. But there were many synagogues and stuff like that. And I had no time for it. They thought it's a bad idea. Okay? For a whole variety of reasons. If you know the history of America, there were a number of attempts during those years for somebody here and somebody there to start a yeshiva and had local opposition, even from the Orthodox. Rabbi Rudiman actually had opposition from the Orthodox in different cities until he came to Baltimore where, through a certain set of circumstances, Things were slightly different. I won't go into that now. It's in the article. Now, um, but even in, in the relatively favorable circumstances of Baltimore, Maryland in the 1930s, it was only relatively favorable. Overall, this was seen as bad. Okay? Now, that means you had a Vatarabunim here and things like that. Of all kind of rabbis. Large shuls and small shuls. This and the other. They weren't crazy about yeshiva at all. I would say the more modern ones, modern Orthodox, you know, were, if anything, oriented to YU at that time, or Skokie. And there was one or two even for the Jewish Theological Seminary, believe it or not. And this was the general trend. So the yeshiva, in the early years, it was just for a few weirdos. Only had 5, 10, 15 guys, eventually 20, 25. Small. So it's a place just for small weirdos. But the effect was... To the Israel Salantra effect. The effect was you put inside the Reform Temple a few guys that just sit and learn. It's not the same thing exactly, but socially speaking, it's the same thing. You understand? Socially speaking, it has that effect. Um, and that's what happened. So the only thing is you got to wait 60 years, <laughs> which is a long time. You have a few people learning and maybe a few more and a few more. And Meanwhile, and I'll say it again, it's very interesting to me. All the decades that he was here, he never gave any interviews to the press, never, you know, never had a question, what do you think of the reform this or the conservative that? None of that ever came up. Obviously, the Shiva doesn't approve of this, you know, all these sorts of things. I'm contrasting this to what that time was the model of the Agodis Rabbanim, Glazer Silver and people like that, but convicts and all the others whose whole meat and potatoes was criticizing the reform and conservative. Uh, if you read the press releases and things from all those decades, every two minutes is another blast on this and that, and they're excommunicating Mordecai Kaplan, and they're killing the conservative get, and they're doing this, and they're doing that. Now, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm simply saying, who did they persuade 
from the non-front? The answer is nobody. So you can say, listen, I was courageous and I expressed, what's the right word, Torah-dick beliefs in the face of uh, large cultural trends in the opposite direction, which is true, but didn't actually do anything. Okay? They, they, at the end of the day, the Agudas Ravonim is an episode. It came and it went. That's that's really the truth. Now, the other side is, if you start a yeshiva, and you just concentrate on nothing but the yeshiva, <clears throat> you don't have to have a plan to convert everybody away from other movements. You just have to give it a long time. What happened, and I've lived through this, what happened was that as time went on, uh, the three movements out there, which I'll call it, the Reform, the Conservative, and the Modern Orthodox. Now, I'm talking about not Modern Orthodox, not the way it is today. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to the term when I was a kid, Modern Orthodox, which were many, many shoals across the country in which nobody was observant. But they went to Orthodox synagogues, which has a plus and a minus, right? I remember those shoals very well. You understand? You know, people belong to the synagogues because their parents did, because this, that, a whole bunch of reasons. But it wasn't anything to do with uh, religious observance. As a matter of fact, I saw many times the following thing. You'd have a guy who kept nothing, and then his father died or mother died, and because he was a good child, you want to say Kaddish, it was still part of the Jewish ethos, Got to say Kaddish for a parent. That guy, would, who could be middle-aged, whatever, would then start coming to Shul to say Kaddish for a year. And because he was a good boy, he would come every day for for, for, for Shachar's Mechamayra, services in the morning, services in the evening. And as happened, he got into the swing of things. Maybe he made friends there. Maybe he liked a cup of coffee. You know, maybe like the little bit of Yiddishkeit, whatever the case is. This happened thousands and thousands of times. I want you to listen closely. And the result was that when the year was up, the 11, 12 months, I got to tell you a story. You know, from the old bold rabbi, Forschlager, somebody, I must have said this, Forschlager, somebody came to him, one of these types that I'm talking about now, and he said, you know, my father died this and the other, He's very religious. Should I keep, say, I say, should Kaddish for 11 months? I should say Kaddish for 12 months? What am I supposed to do? Everybody, four slogan told him that time. I'm talking about the 1930s here. He said, you should say Kaddish for your father 12 months. And the guy went over to me and said, why? The father was a front guy. Why you say 12 months? Everybody, four slogan said, yes. it bothers you that the guy will come to show and wear it film for another 30 days. <laughs> you get it? That's very practical. That's, that's the way things work. This is the world where Rabbi Rudiman arrived in. Okay? And here's the point I wanted to make. This same guy that I spoke about before, who's coming and spending 12 months saying for the cottage, after the 12 months, he said, you know, I'm going to keep this up. And he went for the rest of his life. I'll tell you again, I knew a fair number of people like that. Quite a number. For the rest of his life, would still come every morning to... Uh, uh, to show, even though he didn't say Kaddish anymore, but he realized when I needed it, I was there, you know, so 
when you needed when I needed you were there and then when therefore I'm gonna be in there, or whatever the reasons were, that would come for the rest of his life. But he wouldn't keep anything at home. I knew these people. They didn't keep Shabbos, they didn't keep Kashras, <laughs> they certainly didn't keep Jazz as well. This and the other. They came to show every day. It's weird. You know what I'm saying? This is the most that the traditionalism of the old American school could produce. Because the people I'm talking about were the Yiddish and Hachosim. Those are the best guys. They had a Jewish feeling. You know what I'm saying? They continue to think about it. The person I'm talking about, when did they used to daven years ago? Seven? Quarter to seven? Like my shoulder. That means they had to get up real early and they didn't mind doing it. And they would come there, and if it was, you know, Chalamoid or something, they'd come earlier. They did come. Rain, shine, sleep, and hail. But they wouldn't change anything in the family, and they wouldn't change anything at home. There's no Friday night, there's no Shabbos. There's certainly no Kashrus, they're buying the supermarket the food. Nothing. So it's like a Palgina Deborah, you know what I mean? When I'm Shul Davening, I'm this person. When I'm out there, I'm that person. This was the limits of the um, traditionalism if it's not buttressed by learning. It's very interesting. If not buttressed by learning. And my point is, for the great majority of the time, when those guys, who are nice people, I'll say it again, I'm not talking about somebody who said, I'm not saying cottage, I knew, I knew those types also. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I knew those types also. I'm talking about the guy who's really good about it. Um, but they couldn't translate it into their kids. We're trying to make, you know, more Judaism at home or anything like that. And so we end up with what you call Dhammaratsisha Judaism, which places emphasis on some things and lack of emphasis on others, and usually doesn't get it right. A true Tamil Chacham knows what to place emphasis on and one not depending on the situation. That is the definition of Yisrael Salander. That is the definition of the original Muslim movement. That this you pay a dogish one, and in this case, in that case, you, that you place a non-dogish one. Each case being different. I would say rove of the stories that you've heard of, the Yisrael Salander, are like that. And these were famous in Lithuania, places like that, 100 years ago. Uh... They're all based on what they call in the Lucilus in, Yisharim, the Mishkalach Hasidus, if you look it up over there. Now, but on the other hand, if you're not learned, then you do the opposite. With the best intentions in the world, you put emphasis on this part, you don't put an emphasis on that part. So from a Tom and Chacham point of view, what's better? The guy should go to Shabbos, should go to Shacharis every morning, and should with a minion and be Michal Shabbos? Or the guy should keep Shabbos and not done with him every morning. You, you, you understand? So the only remedy for that is is learning, which which can only come in the context of yeshivas. Uh, now, what happened, therefore, was... By the way, what I talked about was in the modern Orthodox. You can imagine it was like by the conservative reform. There wasn't even a Havamin. So, if you think along those lines, year after year, decade after decade... This was the world of America at that time. And I'll say it again. Baltimore was more traditional than many other cities. More traditional. It had more of a tradition than other cities. But even then it was Shvach. And 
at the bottom line is you lose the younger generation because there's no framework for keeping the kids within some kind of a firm educational context, socially and otherwise, intellectually, spiritually, then it's a waste of time. 99% of the kids will leave, and not only will leave, but you know won't even want to marry Jewish. Why should they? And if by some screwball chance they do, they're going to move away to another neighborhood to have nothing to do with Judaism. I witnessed this. And say, I'm talking about mass phenomena over here. I'm talking one or two people. I'm talking about mass phenomena. They moved to this neighborhood, they moved to that place, and others. And if anything, those children usually became very uncomfortable around anything Jewish. It's interesting. Very uncomfortable. Uh, and so the result was as follows. And what I'm going to talk about now, it moved backwards. First, it hit the modern Orthodox of that type. Then it hit the conservative, and now the reform. Okay, that's the more or less the pattern in my lifetime. And what it is, is you had shoals and, and institutions that flourished once upon a time, but then didn't, because the next generation simply didn't attend. And so there are many shoals in Baltimore. Again, I'm not saying only Baltimore, but I'm using Baltimore as an example, because I'm familiar with the second one. We're talking about Rosh Hashiva or Ruderman. Okay? So there are many shoals and big institutions like that that they had their 10 minutes of fame, let's say 20 years, 30 years, something like that. Let's say 40 years, not, not even. <clears throat> in which the show was packed. You had impressive rabbi, impressive chazan, architecture, everything. And they had Kiddush on Shabbos and Shalosh Shodas and hold written all on yards. And then all of a sudden, you realize there's no next generation. It's only that generation who, who get into their 40s and then their 50s and then their 60s and their 70s, then their 80s and then their 90s. You see where I'm going with that. And there's no one replacing them. And so the place just simply went under. Okay? Went under. This is what happened... I would say in the, in the first 40 years, let's say 50 years, not even, of the yeshiva here in Baltimore. When he came in, this is, Rabbi Ruderman, I'll tell you, it's it's interesting. He didn't get into, I, and I could name all kinds of issues, but I'm not going to in this podcast. He could have, you know, pointed to issues, Lagabi this, Lagabi that, different things in the, in, in the Orthodox community, different things the rabbis were doing right or wrong. They didn't do like that. Everybody knows that near Israel just sticks to itself and does its own business and therefore uh, appeals to the support for everybody in the community, number one. But on the other hand, right? And since you're not criticizing anybody, a lot of people, each one for his own reason, gave money to the yeshiva. All the yeshivas in America, certainly near Israel, a heavy amount that come from the non from Which means, like I said before, there is that penalty, the same thing that could motivate somebody to come to chakras for 50 years. <laughs> Even though you and your life aren't changing your your observance, that same pentelit, if you want to call it that, could say, you know, I don't keep nothing, but I'm going to write a check for $10,000 for the yeshiva. Yeah, which is coming from a holy place. The trouble is, is, that's all that's there. Okay? And I'm sure in the case of the yeshiva and many other yeshivas, there was a generation of non-from Jews that gave money and their children not. 
for the same reason I just described. So we're dealing with vast sociological trends. I think that he was smart enough to see this. And um, again, since I'm bringing results to it's very famous that everybody knows this, that he spent the first uh, so and so many years, 40 years, whatever, 50 years in Russia and Lithuania. And then he left and went to Germany. And they said, why are you leaving? And he, we need you over here. And he said, when the uh, horse and wagon is, is, is out of control, running down the hill, it's unstoppable. It's just going down. Here in Germany, already hit the rock bottom, so we're starting to push back up. That's the famous tale they tell. Okay? Uh, that is exactly a description of uh, modern orthodoxy, as I described, I repeat, I'm not talking about modern orthodoxy the way it's used today. I'm talking about modern orthodoxy the way it was used once upon a time. It was in a free fall going down the hill. And just so everybody throws cilantro, couldn't stop it. Neither could, you know, Robert Rudin or anybody else. And the result was it crashed. And so, I'm old enough to remember, and I've said this many times, that here in Baltimore, when I was a little kid, they had what they called the Jewish Times, you know, a local newspaper, and they would have all the shows, and what time the services are, and this and that and the other. And you saw dozens of shows. And I can tell you right off, almost off my head, 30 or maybe more names, maybe 40, Shoals that once upon a time existed and flourished and then disappeared. They're just not there today. Nobody killed them. Nobody criticized them. Nobody burned them down. They just ceased. You know, they kicked the bucket. They went bankrupt in the sense of human capital. You see? I mean, one after another after another. I mean, a lot of shoals. Okay? Now, what's the yeshiva supposed to do about that? You can't stop a train running down the hill. Nobody can. The question is, can you start at something else, you know, the process of pushing up the hill? You see what I'm saying? Can you start the process of pushing up the hill? So, it's not that uh, Baltimore, you might say, moved to the right or something, I guess. That would be the, the way the journalists like to put it these days. Is <laughs> that the left disintegrated on its own. All that was left was the right. You know, that's a different story. Now, in the case of Baltimore, I was talking about a process that took over 40 years, from 1933 to 73, maybe 50 years, where Sheba died around a little after 83 and 87, I think. So, you know, those years. His life lived through this process of sociological transformation. But, you'll say like this, how does that build up Baltimore? Well, it turned out and I don't know if he had this in mind or not, it turned out that the yeshivas, um, in addition to uh, being a place of learning and all that goes along with that, also became a place of sociological transformation and creation. Uh, I'll tell you what I mean. In the case of Baltimore. Now, I don't think it's like this in Lakewood. They have a different history. And it's not like this in Monty. A different history. I'm talking about Baltimore. The, for those of you who live out in those places, Baltimore is in the south of where you are. <laughs> now, uh, what happened was that once the yeshiva reached a certain point, a number of guys, they started a kolel. 
Now, again, which all this took over a long period of time. And once the Kolel, quote-unquote, took off, he had more and more guys. And that means there's a guy in Yeshiva, could be from another place, and he gets married, but he's still learning in Baltimore. So what that means, Lamaisa is, you're going to live in Baltimore while you're learning. Your wife will do whatever she does. It means you're going to live somewhere in the city of Baltimore, in the Jewish neighborhood city of Baltimore. Now, it could be that, let's say I'm just making this up, you learn for five years, and then you move somewhere else. You move back to New York, you move here, you move there. That's okay. But X number of people are going to say, you know something? I'm already used to being here. And so I'm going to settle here. If you get enough guys to do that, you created artificially a new sociological element. It becomes a population that did not exist before. It's not shocked that you converted a whole bunch of non-from people in Baltimore to become from. It's not even true that you converted a whole bunch of from people in Baltimore to come from her. You're taking people from elsewhere and you're creating a sociological system, although that's not the theory of the Kolel at all, but it's a byproduct of it. And what you're saying is, Lamaisa, this guy's going to settle down here and that guy's going to settle down here and the other guy, and if it reaches enough people, let's say all of a sudden you have 100 families that do so, which eventually you reach. You have 100 families they are not just from their B'nai Torah. You created a new sociological reality, the likes of which was beyond imagination in 1933. You understand? Um, those guys are going to have their standards of kashrut and chinuch and so on and so forth. It's not a matter of fighting someone else they are who they are, and if necessary, they'll build up their own shul and all the rest of it. And if it's not 100 families, but it's 200 families, eventually 300 families, or 400 families, you see where I'm going? You mamish replaced population A with population B. Population A existed in 1933. Population B exists in the year 2022. Population A was Orthodox families whose kids were on the way out. And Taka went on the way out. Population B is coming from a different way. Population A had really no Jewish education of any quality whatsoever. And whatever they had was a turn off. Population B has a very different experience of Jewish education. Once you do that, that affects day schools, that affects neighborhoods, that affects property values, that even affects, in an interesting cycle, the, the revival of synagogues. Because when I was little, the shul, most of the shuls were this, the type that I just described before, with a few exceptions here in Baltimore. But most of the synagogues, the ones that disappeared, were of a certain type. And consequently, uh, somebody was learning the yeshiva, near his role anywhere else, didn't really want to become a pulpit rabbi. Because what it means is you're coming into a place where nobody's from, your chance of succeeding and really, you know, converting everybody, very little. You know, you can always take the point of view that if I save one person or two families, it's a big deal. And it is, I'm not taking that away, but it really grinds you down. And therefore, there used to be expression that the Orthodox rabbin is not a place for a good Jewish boy. But, and I, I get it. Stone said you had the Shibusha Minyonim and that sort of thing. Right? This didn't only happen in Baltimore, I'm talking about Baltimore. Now, once you have the new sociology, the new population that was created, 
all of a sudden you have, let's say for argument's sake, 100 or 200 families, they say, we want to have a shul. That's a type of shul that didn't exist. Yeah, almost. You understand? You, it, it's a new type of Judaism. You reinvented the orthodoxy. And as I said before, they were the Kashua standards, the Chinook standards, this standards, and that standards. You reinvented everything. And so that's what I mean when I said that it's just very interesting to me that since it's the yard set of Rabbi Ruderman, and the Yeshiva called Neri Yisrael, the light of Yisrael, Yisrael Salanter, Yisrael Salanter had this policy, which he expressed in his way, which was the 19th century reality. I think the Rosh Hashiva did it, you know, I don't, I'm not saying consciously, but they, there's such a thing called an unconscious agent of history, historical change. The person could be an unconscious uh, uh, agent of historical change, uh, you're creating a process that you yourself didn't necessarily see where it's through. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he said, I'm more sure Torah, and therefore the Torah itself will just put everything right. What about the, the conservative and the reform? Well, this is interesting. You know, I would only, I would make the following observation. The last 20, 30 years, it seems to me, have seen a tremendous embitterment because the former conservative, maybe the last 40 years, 50, whatever, they move hard to the left. That's because um, American culture moved hard to the left. Politically correct American culture. All the sexual things, all this, that, and the other. It's not where things were. There was a time when people spoke about Torah Mata, their Harris. And what they meant was that Western culture is an admirable culture. They meant it. Uh, and it had admirable features, no features, no question about it. Therefore, it's a chachila trying to combine Judaism, Torah Judaism, Torah Judaism, with the best, the, the positive features of Western culture. That would be the perfect combination. But that's the culture of the 1950s. <laughs> you understand? You know, that kind of business. Things don't stay static. Maybe the good Lord has a sense of humor. I don't know. But things don't stay static. And everybody knows that the nature, the dynamics of the Western culture are very problematic. Now, I'm not trying to give some kind of frummy dummy speech. It's just a Matthias. You know, we're, we're, we're living through times and we will be in for future revolutionary events not too long down the road if you follow the politics I think everybody does and because the other Jewish movements kind of were committed to embracing this they were committed to embracing Western values in the 1950s and they couldn't let go of it even when the 1950s turned in the 1960s and 70s and afterwards so consequently it became more difficult to find the type of reform or conservative Jew that I described before, really just was there because they attended services there, had some kind of sentimental attachment, but they themselves weren't ideologically you know, committed to um, all these new cultural norms. That's the era when yeshivas like Neri Stroll and other schools, TA and the others, used to get a fair amount of money and support from members of reform and conservative synagogues. I don't think this is the case today. 
Now, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not in the uh, money raiser business, you know, fundraiser business and all that. But it seems to me that that's the direction things are going. Uh, because the Kulturkampf, uh, the clash of values, just becomes stronger all the time. And it's really an alternative set of values. So what is considered Jew- Jewishly mandated by one is not by the other. Uh, the Orthodox consider Shabbos Jewishly mandated. The other ones might consider, I don't know, abortion Jewishly mandated. Then they really mean it. They really mean it. Okay? Or gay marriage. They really mean it. Tikkun Olam and all the rest of it. When you have uh, nothing in common, it's very hard to criticize. You know, what am I going to say to somebody? How can you be a Shabbos? They'll say, I don't believe in Shabbos. There's no God anyway. And Shabbos is just some uh, invention. Therefore, who cares? What, what do I say to him? You know, there's no basis for a debate, even a conversation. It just come from different points of view. In that context, a yeshiva, depending how they play the cards, is interesting because I do see the little of them around that you will still find people, uh, and there Israel's always had this, and maybe the other yeshivas too, where this guy or that guy coming from a very reformed, conservative, secular background, May end up, each guy's got his own story, I don't know exactly. Um, showing up and having a relationship and being in the base marriage, learning with this guy or that guy, you know, once a week, twice a week, once a month, whatever. Uh, and it's just very interesting to see the process unfold in which, like I said before, like Mr. Saunter, I'm not criticizing, I'm not telling you what to do. We're just going to learn Bubba Tzia, that's all. <laughs> you understand? We're just going to learn Parsha um, does that still have the effect of winning over uh, people as it, as it once did? All I know is there's nothing else that's going to do it. You see? Uh, there's nothing else that's going to work. At least that's what experience shows. What do I know? Maybe some new situation will pop up. But as far as, he can see, as, far as I can see, this model, the Robert Ruderman model, if you want to call it that, uh, in which you just concentrate on doing your thing, the others come and go and usually, as they say, cr- roll down the hill and crash on their own. Uh, and you're there if anybody wants to come pick up the pieces. This turns out to be a, 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 an insight of great wisdom in the context of the 20th century. We're talking about 90 years, so the 20th and 21st century so far. I don't know what the future is, of course. And is, in the sociological sense, um, I think, and sociologically, the biggest tribute to the Russian Shiva. I think. Anyway, it's just a, a, an insight that I had. And uh, once again, I want to thank Henry, um, who, as I say before, certainly was close to the Shiva. And uh, with the, the yard site is going to be on Wednesday. I know Shiva's going to have some kind of bash they do every year. And uh, with that, anyway, I wish you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.